The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Bears history by the decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winter. Matt, welcome to the 1930s. Happy to be here, Jeff, in 1930s. Excited to see what happens to the Bears this decade. Yeah, hopefully uh, we can get through the Great Depression better than a lot of Americans did, but uh, we're going to get into that here in a little bit. I need to cover the classic cocktail for the decade. Here we go. Had a couple of options, but I think this one is probably the most famous from the 30s. Um, It's called the French 75. It is a cocktail that was reportedly uh, one of the favorites of Ernest Hemingway. So here's how you make it. Put a shot or two, depending on how you want to play this, of your favorite gin. Yeah, right. Of your favorite gin. I've also seen this recipe made with cognac for you, Matt. We're going to go with gin. Uh, we're gonna, I love the gin. We're going to put a little bit of lime juice in there. We're going to put a little bit of simple syrup. And then you're going to top it off with champagne. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is a classy drink. So I'm kind of curious about this because in, in the modern world, champagne is pretty expensive. It's interesting that in the 30s, which I would think you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of money, that this this cocktail came to prominence. But the story goes that this drink was invented in... Uh, World War One era, a fighter pilot, found some champagne, found that it didn't have enough kick for him. So he invented this concoction, made it a little stronger by kicking it with some gin. And he said that it was so strong that it felt like he was on the receiving end of a French 75 millimeter howitzer art- artillery fire. So that's, oh, wow. that's where the name comes from. So that's the cocktail for the decade. The Bears pretty pretty good in the 30s. They were 80... 85, 28, and 11. Very impressive record. They won the division four times and won the NFL championship twice. Uh, We talked about last time how Hallis had four 10-year stints as head coach. Hallis took off the first three years of this decade, so a guy named Ralph Jones coaches the team from 1930 to 1932. So he was the coach during the championship year of 1932. Was there any specific reason Hallis... Hired this guy? 
I don't know about a specific reason for hiring him specifically, but I know he wanted to take a step back to focus on other things. And so that that's what he did. Uh, obviously, he does this a couple times in his career. For this time, he does miss out on coaching that championship team in 32. They finished, the Bears finished with a record of 7-1-6, and six, six ties. And we talked about last time how the champion was determined by record and not by any sort of championship game. This is the last year that that happens. And I think part of it is the Bears went 7-1-6. and six, And the Packers finished at 10-3-1. and one. So they won. So the Bears' winning percentage was still better with those ties. Much better because they only won, they only lost the one game, and so this was actually the last year that they did this, uh, and it was only eight teams. So the Great Depression really hit them hard, and they were they were down to eight ball clubs in 1932. But in 1933, they're able to get a couple more teams, and they split into two divisions, and so uh, both divisions have five teams each. And then the winners of those two visions will play in a championship game at the end of the season. So in 33, they lose one team, the Staten Island Stapletons. They're no longer the Stapletons. Around. The Stapletons. I don't huh. know what that means, but they're no longer around, so it doesn't matter. Uh, and the league adds three new teams, the Cincinnati Reds, who are around for a whole two years, Pittsburgh Pirates, who will eventually change their name to the Steelers in the 1940 season, and then the Philadelphia Eagles come into existence in 33. So the, the Reds did not become the Bengals? They did not. No, the Bengals don't happen for, for a while. So it, it's, it's kind of funny that you see these standings and you see Brooklyn Dodgers, Cincinnati Reds, and Pittsburgh Pirates in the NFL standings. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's the, the league in, that, in this time. Uh, in 1933, Bears are v- really good again, and they come back. They win their division, so they win the first uh, Western Division at that at that time, and they play the New York Giants in Wrigley Field in the first championship game, the first game that's taking place because of the two division winners. The Bears come out on top, so Hallis' return to the team wins the first championship game. A guy by the name of Bill Carr scores two touchdowns uh, from Bronco Nagurski uh, passing the ball, and a guy that we're going to get into in a little bit, Automatic Jack Manders kicks three field goals to beat the Giants 23-21. to Those are the two championships from the decade. They had a perfect 13-0 season, but they could not complete the perfect campaign as they lost to those same Giants the next year. And they would also lose the championship game to Washington in 1937. And so by the end of the decade, uh, the NFL looks like this. Washington, the New York Giants, the Eagles, the Pirates, who will soon be the Steelers, and the Brooklyn Dodgers are in the East. The Bears, Packers, the Lions, who are now Detroit, the Chicago Cardinals, and the Cleveland Rams are in the West. And so that's, that's the NFL up to and through the 1930s. What about U.S. history? Well, before we get to the history, just... Correct me if I'm wrong. The the Bears undefeated season thirteen and zero. They had won a bunch of games at the end of the previous season correctly, and so I think for a while they had the longest winning streak in NFL history until the two thousand seven Juggernaut Patriots. Oh, Is that correct? I did not come across that, but I would. That sounds right. Don't quote me on that stat. We might have to cut that whole thing. But I thought I read something where. I think they had won the games from the previous year and then all 13 games until the championship game of that year. And then that was like, ooh, maybe 
17 or 18. I, I, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. We can look into that later. But um, to U.S. history, Jeff, the 30s are not a pleasant time. Great Depression is in full swing. Things are bad. Uh, at, at one point, you have estimated 25% of the working population is unemployed. And so the Great Depression is famous for bread lines, people being evicted from their homes, just times are tough. We only have two presidents during this time. We have the first one, Herbert Hoover, uh, criticized for not doing much when the Great Depression kicks off. But that leads to the election of Franklin Roosevelt, FDR. And of course, any kid who's ever sat through a history class knows about the New Deal and all the New Deal programs that we still kind of have around today, most famously the Social Security that all retirees get. And this is a tough time, Jeff, a very tough time. There's not a lot of good things going on. Uh, what people do have is they still have the radio. The radio is still big. People still flock to sporting events, believe it or not. And those are one of the few things that people can do to enjoy themselves. Uh, along with that, also movies. Uh, here, here's some big movies from the time. This is called The Golden Age of Hollywood. Okay. And so we've got King Kong, the original, Gong with the Wind, <laughs> and, and we have your personal favorite, The Wizard of Oz. Three huge movies from that time. I, and I have to admit, I didn't realize those movies were all from the 30s. I would have guessed 40s or maybe I, – I, I had no idea. But those three big movies all from that time. So – if you're an average person, they're, again, not a lot to do, but here's, so I, I thought of it this way. We'll do it a little different this time. Here are some big events from the 1930s. Uh, we have FDR's fireside chats, him coming on the radio and easing Americans' concerns about all the bad things that are going on. Might also be listening to a man named Bob Hope on the radio. Wow. A big star. Yeah. A big star. Think about that. Bob yeah, Hope. Yeah, 30s. How yeah, amazingly popular from the '30s all the way to, I don't I don't have an idea of when he passed, but he was on, he was part of popular culture for a long time. 1936 Summer Olympics, uh, Jesse Owens, they're in Germany, and that's an exciting time. Uh, Amelia Earhart flies across the Atlantic Ocean. Babe Ruth hits his last home run and retires from the Yankees. There's not a lot of fashion advancements, at least not for the middle and lower classes. The upper classes, a little bit, but you know, for your lower and middle classes, Jeff, they're just they're probably still wearing the same clothes that they had from the 1920s, as long as they still fit. A favorite of mine, in 1938, they had the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. Right. Which, okay. Yeah, which I'm sure all our people know, but the fake alien invasion freaked a lot of people out. People thought it was real. So things like that are going on, and one bit of good news is they passed the 21st Amendment. They repeal prohibition. People can drink again. Thank and so God. they can have those 75s and uh, all the great gin recipes you're coming up with. And so that's one good thing. And I found this interesting, and I, I don't claim to know much about this, but apparently in the 1930s, wearing sunglasses started to become popular, like a fashion statement. That's that's about it for U.S. history. Not a great time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can think, think our, of a couple our, things, right? So Bob Hope, I'm looking it up right now. So Bob Hope lived to be 100 years old, which wow. good for him. He died in 2003. 
And wow. I imagine that he was performing, you know, uh, quite quite late into his life. One of the things that I remember from that era is the idea of Hoovervilles. Yes. So Hoovervilles were uh, – when Hoover was president, again, he didn't do much. He was trying to let things work out on their own, free market type stuff. And that just wasn't really working. And so you have a, a big segment of the population that they were begging for help and they weren't getting any. And so they don't have homes, and so they would set up these, think of them as uh, big camping ground tent areas where they would call Hoovervilles, and that's where all the people that were going through really tough times would live. And and so there's stuff like that. It, it's just not a pleasant decade. And uh, towards the end, the probably the last big event of the decade is September 1st, 1939, uh, Germany invades Poland, and that kicks off World War II, which, of course, is going to change everything on the course of not only history of the world, Jeff, but also history of the United States. Well, I imagine that we're going to spend a little bit of time on World War II in the next episode because it does impact the Bears quite a bit. But we'll, we'll save that for the actual 40s. And I think I picked up Hooverville because I actually read the book Grapes of Wrath. And yes, I think, that, I think probably most of us had to that are listening to this. Well, you know, there's that, you know, the books that were assigned to you and then the books that you actually read that were assigned to you. And this was one that I actually actually went through and read the whole thing cover to cover. It came out in mm-hmm. 1939 and it kind of described that era. Um, so a little shout out on the podcast for John Steinbeck and his, uh, <laughs> his work. <laughs> By the way, Travel to Charlie uh, totally holds up. Really good book by Steinbeck. So there's my nerdy uh, book recommendation for the 1930s. And <laughs> well, we'll uh, one thing that I learned about in Bears history that I think is really fascinating, Hallis ran, runs into, as most people did uh, in the 30s, ran into some money problems uh, trying to keep the Bears afloat. And so George Trafton, our old friend George Trafton, somehow his mom comes into the picture. So I, I imagine that Hallis and Trafton are, are still friendly on friendly terms he lets him know that he's having some trouble george trafton's mom i guess has uh, some money and decides that she will loan george hallis twenty thousand dollars to keep the bears going in 1931 and with basically with the understanding that hallis can buy the shares back once they're solvent and so he eventually buys it back for forty thousand dollars so she doubles her money with this loan good investment absolutely and and at the time, Jeff, a lot of the banks have closed. That was probably one of the most important factors in the Great Depression really happening is that banks were not uh, insured by the government like they are today. And so people panicked. People pulled their money out. The banks basically had to shut down. And it was a, a huge part of why did the Great Depression happened. I just think it's – yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's really interesting that you have this former player's mom – bailing you out, you know, help more helping you, whatever you want to say. But I just think it's really interesting that a loan from this, this woman that, you know, got to know Hallis over the years, I'm sure through her son, you know, just, just helps this team keep going because otherwise it might not be here. And I, I find that to be really, really fascinating. Uh, so, so Trafton comes back and makes one more appearance on the podcast, a favorite from the twenties. God bless Trafton's mom. <laughs> in the championship belt series, Trafton's walk-up music is uh, LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out. Of course. Of course. That's very fitting. I tell that story in that series as well. So, All right. Let's talk about the key players. So these are Hall of Famers or just like pivotal players that we felt needed to be talked about that really 
exemplify the 1930s. There are a couple people that bleed over from the 20s. You know, Grange is still playing in the early part of the decade. But for the most part, these guys are are pretty new to, to the team. And look, this is the 1930s. This is Bronco Nagurski's decade. And so we're going to start there. Nagurski comes in in 1930. He comes in from the University of Minnesota. He has this amazing array of legendary stories behind him. And there's a few, I've talked about them before in different areas, but one of my favorites is that when Bronco Nagurski entered the world, legend has it that Paul Bunyan sensed it and told his blue ox babe, we have a challenger. (laughs) (laughs) And so this guy's just, he's larger than life. He comes into the NFL and he's just a, a star fullback. He plays linebacker on defense. He earns first-team All-Pro honors in 1932, 33, 34, and 36. For his career, he averages an, a really impressive for that era, 4.4 yards per carry. I mean, that's that's good in today's era, but that was really spectacular when there's you know 11 guys in the box. Just an incredible, incredible power fullback. There's this great story about him running into the brick wall at Wrigley Field with such force that he cracks the brick. <laughs> and he comes back to the sidelines and someone says, hey, Bronco, how are you doing? He said, well, you know, a couple of those guys hit pretty hard, but that last guy, he really packed a wallop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, uh, he had a 22-inch neck and a 19-and-a-half-inch, size 19.5 ring finger. Size so, 19.5 ring finger. Yeah, Holy cow. I think mine's like 11. And my neck's like 17, 18, something, you know, depending on. And you're a big guy. Yeah. And this, he's just so much bigger. He's just this really thick guy and it's just super strong. And so he's, I, to me, he's one of these guys that from this era, you could honestly say, I think he could play today. Jeff, I, there, there, there's not a lot of highlights out there for 1930 stuff, but. On YouTube, the one guy I could consistently find were clips of Bronco Nagurski, and he looks like the senior in high school that is going against JV freshman kids. Like he's just they're bouncing off him. He he looks so much like you say, more like uh, someone from modern times in terms of how physical he was than people from back in that era in the 30s. It's just it was fun to watch his highlights. People just bouncing off of him. It was great. And, you know, we're talking 90 years ago, right? So we have, like, a more modern uh, example of of someone comparing him to the modern day at their time, uh, which is still ancient history to to a lot of us. But Red Grange at some point was interviewed, and he is quoted as saying, when anybody asks me who the greatest football player I ever saw was, I don't even hesitate. It was Nagurski. Equal to Buckus in his prime on defense, faster and equal to Larry Zonka on offense. Wow. So, I mean, you know, again, it's his buddy and he played with him, but I think that really speaks to the level of player that he was, is that he's just this larger than life character. And, you know, this is, you know, fast forwarding 30 years that from, you know, to get into Buckus's era to make that comparison. But still, like, I think that you can make this determination that Nagurski would have held up. Again, just larger than life, this really is. His, he, he really dominates a lot of the stories of this decade. But there's we got a lot of other guys that we want to get to. And the first guy that you have is Joe Kopsha. Yes, Joe Kopsha. And Jeff, the people that always fascinate me in life are people that are 
really good at a lot of different things. I'm still trying to find one thing that I'm good at. Sure. And we got someone like Joe Kopcha who, okay, let me just start. He's a four-sport stud athlete in college. He went to University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. He plays football. He plays basketball. He plays baseball. And I believe he runs track. And so he's he's basically uh, all-conference at all those sports. He first plays for the Bears in 1929. Right, so he he at the very end of that decade, he leaves the Bears for like three seasons to enroll in med school. Hmm. And so he, he he's he's that smart. He's in med school and he's doing that. And then he gets that he gets that itch to come back come back and play for the Bears. And so he asks Hallis, "Hey, I would like to rejoin the Bears." Hallis is thinking, ah, "Now this guy's been out two three years. There's no way, but gives him a shot." And not only is he good enough to come back, Jeff, he's a Three-time All-Pro, three years in a row during those great Bear seasons in the early to mid-30s. And so he's a fantastic player. He's obviously smart enough to be a doctor. In 1936, he wants to go to this different prestigious med school in Detroit. And so he asks Hallis for a trade. Hallis grants it to him. And so he plays his final year in Detroit because he wanted to go to this med school. And so from that point on, he, he only played one year in Detroit. He retires afterward to a life of, of being this very well thought of doctor, I believe a pediatrician. And so just those types of people just really fascinate me. Not only is he good enough to be one of the best football players in his era, but he's smart enough to go to med school and do all that. And I just, I really admire those types of people and kind of a, a, a funny quote he had, I'll paraphrase him, where if one of his professors at med school would ever give him a hard time for missing because of football, he would just tell Papa Bear, tell Papa Bear Hallis, and Papa Bear Hallis would set that professor straight, and Kopcha didn't have any more problems with that professor. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're basically describing uh, a renaissance man, right? Like someone who's just really good at a lot of things. And that's really cool that the Bears have someone like that in their history. We actually have another guy that's very similar story that we're going to get to here in a little bit. But I want to talk about Luke Johnsos first. And this is a name that I think all Bear fans honestly really need to know. So he, he starts on the Bears in 929. He plays in. He's a really good player. He's named first team all pro in 30 and 31. He's nicknamed the professor. Red Grange calls him one of the best pass catchers in the league, right? So, you know, he's he's a really good end for the Bears. He's a native to Illinois. He goes to Northwestern. So, again, kind of backs up that he's a really smart guy. But what I think what's most interesting is he plays for the Bears for seven years. He ends his career in 1936. But Hallis brings him on as an assistant coach instantly. So in 1937, he's a he's an assistant coach for Hallis. And get this, Matt, he's on the Bears coaching staff until 1968. So he was 30 plus years a coach for the Bears. Yes, yes, he's so he's affiliated with the Bears for 40 seasons. So Hallis obviously thought that high of highly of him if he's going to have him around for that long. He's a huge part of the fabric of the Chicago Bears. He's Again, a really good player in the early 30s. He becomes an assistant coach. In the 40s, we're going to talk about him a little bit more because he becomes the co-head coach when Hallis uh, goes off to World War II. And then he stays on as an assistant through all of these different iterations of the Bears and Bears coaches until 1968. And so he's a part of five championship teams as a coach and two as a player. 
That's that's fascinating because usually when, say, a new head coach comes on, they get their choice of who's going to be on the staff and who they don't want to keep. And But this guy must have been well thought enough not only by Hallis but also all these other coaches that would come in. And I, I know Hallis is a coach in spurts during that time too. But, man, that's, uh, that's staying power. That's job security. It's one of those names that he has so much to do with the Bears that I don't think people – maybe have heard the name but they should know it because he's he's a bear through and through so well they know it now because of the podcast (laughs) absolutely so the next guy is bill hewitt and and then also jack manders i'm gonna hand those guys over to you so we got bill hewitt jeff five nine one ninety on offense he's an end a pass catcher on on defense i couldn't quite understand if again i'm not sure how the game is played exactly at this point i know you said everyone's kind of close to the line of scrimmage. It's kind of a big melee, but he's some sort of end on defense. He's a four-time All-Pro, and my probably my favorite thing I've researched this whole time is this guy refused to wear a helmet as long as yeah. he could. <laughs> Everyone else, it, it's not like half the guys are not wearing helmets. No, he's not wearing a helmet. Everyone else is wearing a helmet, and... I believe it's his final year in 1939 where league actually mandates, no, Bill, you must wear a helmet. And so he refused to wear a helmet, and it fits, it, it fits in with his quote from Alice. Alice says he was a happy-go-lucky guy until he stepped onto the field, and then he was a terror on offense and defense. He asked no quarter nor gave any. I just love that <laughs> quote, especially at the end. The last really interesting thing about him is his nickname was the offside kid because on defense, he could supposedly get off the ball so quick that everyone thought he was always offsides. And he's just like, hey, I'm really quick. And that's how the name stuck, the offside kid, which, again, Jeff, the the nicknames for this time are so (laughs) amazing. There's there's nothing half that cool today for any player, a, a nickname. So Bill Hewitt, one of the greatest bears of that 1930s decade. So you, you've already covered a really smart guy and kind of sounds like you've, I don't want to say he wasn't smart, but, you know, not wearing a helmet's kind of a crazy thing. Another great nickname, Automatic Jack Manders. Yes, Automatic Jack Manders. And if you can't, if our audience can't figure it out, he's automatic because he was a field goal kicker or the kicker of the team. But he's, he's 6'1", 200, which is big for that time. So he's a kicker and... Jeff, get this. At a time when I guess they were all drop kicking at this time. Right. And so he was, a lot of what I read credits him with being one of the first ones or the first one to have someone hold the ball for him while he would kick it. And so right. that's why he's he's basically the best kicker in the league during this whole decade. Led the league in field goals four times. He had 76 consecutive extra points, which may not sound like a lot today. That I, I I don't know. Well, I, I imagine they were kicking it from the what the three yard line or the two yard line or whatever they did for a long time. But I know I've tried to kick uh, a field goal or an extra point, and it's extremely difficult. I'm not very good at it. So someone back then, where he doesn't have a kicking coach, there's you know he can't go on YouTube, Jeff, and watch videos of how to kick a football. And but he right. just he perfects it, and he has 76 straight extra points at a time where. I bet those points were all very, very important, and it surely gave the Bears an edge because no one seemed to have a kicker of his caliber. My favorite Manders story is in 1964. He's been retired for over 20 years, 
uh, Hallis and the Bears, they call him back to training camp, Jeff, because the Bears kickers in 1964 just must be terrible. They're struggling. They call him in to instruct these kickers. And so while he's instructing these kickers, 20 years after he's retired, he just steps on and says, oh, here, here's how it's done, boys. From the 30-yard line, he nails six out of seven field goals 20 years after he's retired. Like This guy, <laughs> that's why they called him Automatic Jack. Name, the name That's fits. amazing. And I have to assume that Automatic Jack is no longer with us. Otherwise, Matt Nagy should probably call him and see if he can come in and give a tutorial for, for this false team because that sounds fantastic. And the next guys that I have are a couple of linemen. I wanted to bring these guys in together. Kind of amazing, but the first NFL draft is in 1936. The first draft pick for George Hallis in the first round of the 1936 draft. So the first ever draft, his first ever pick, Joe Steidehar, Hall of Fame tackle. The draft is nine rounds. His ninth round pick, Hallis's ninth round pick, Danny Fortman, guard, Hall of Famer. Wow. So Hallis kills it in the 36 draft. So these guys come in and they, they're instrumental in the, the early 40s championships. But, you know, they're playing in the back half of the 30s. So we want to talk about them here. Both named to the 1930s All-Decade team by the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Both guys are Hall of Famers. Fortman was a first-team All-Pro seven straight seasons, which is, like, disgustingly good. So 1937. Not bad for an eighth-round draft pick. Yeah, crazy. So 1937 to 1943, he is a first-team All-Pro every year. Then he goes off and fights in World War II. Okay, we'll get back to him in a second. Steidehar, he's a first-team All-Pro four times row from 37 to 40. So both incredibly good players. And in 1939, just to kind of hit hammer this point home, Fortman is the second-leading vote-getter in All-Pro voting. Steidehar was third. <laughs> So, wow. so these guys were like really well thought of. Steidehar was really big. He, he he was called a monster. He's six foot four. Fortman was just six foot even, but even at that shorter height, he was still considered uh, the best lineman in the NFL at the time. And after the 1940 season, Hallis called him the heart and soul of the running game. So pretty incredible compliment there. I think both of these guys are, are really fascinating guys, but Fortman is kind of a personal favorite. The story that I really like out of Fortman is that Hallis wanted him to play for the Bears, and Fortman wanted to become a doctor. And so Hallis brokers a deal with the University of Chicago's medical school <laughs> to allow Fortman to practice with the Bears and play the, the Bears games on the weekends and, and basically charts out his class, the classes that he needs to take to become a doctor and play professional football. And so, you know, Hallis, again, just kind of this master negotiator with everybody in life is able to get the guy that he wants that's integral uh, to these teams from, has so much success and allows Fortman to, you know, become the doctor that he wants to be. So here's the, here's the story with Fortman is that when World War II rolls around in the 40s, he, uh, we'll just cover this now, he joins and he is in the Navy Medical Corps and he's in the Pacific Theater. So he serves in World War II. He survives. He comes back and he gets his license to practice medicine in California. 
and he becomes the Los Angeles Rams team doctor in 1947 and serves oh, wow. yeah he serves in that capacity until 1963 and so he was around football for most of his life and just a really cool smart guy you know just a fun story and incredibly good one of the best offensive linemen in Bears history and i think you could make the argument that he's the best guard in Bears history. Really cool guy. And then the last guy that we wanted to cover is BD Feathers. What can you tell me about him? Jeff, BD Feathers, 5'10", 185. His nickname, he had a couple of nicknames. One was Big Chief because he had Native American heritage. And because of that, he was often compared to the great Jim Thorpe. Sure. Went to Tennessee, All-American at Tennessee. It, get this, again, the nicknames, Jeff. Known as the Bounding Antelope. Because of his running style <laughs> at the University of Tennessee. Yeah, it, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but it's a cool nickname. All right, Jeff. His rookie year. Right. He had 110 rushes for 1,004 yards. He's the first back in the NFL to go over 1,000 yards. He averaged 8.4 yards per carry. He, he I couldn't find any clips of him, which is sad, but... They described him as just quicker and faster than everyone. And you've mentioned earlier in the podcast that Nagurski, four point something yards per carry, was extremely good for that time. This guy, 8.4 yards per carry. I I think after learning all this and learning how the game was, this has to be one of the most dominating seasons in NFL history. He's just, it's like when Babe Ruth hits 60 home runs and the next closest guy hits 20. Like he is so far ahead of the field. And sadly, his sophomore campaign, his second year in the league, he hurts his shoulder really bad. And he kind of played through it, but he just was never the same after that. He doesn't put up stats too close to that. Uh, he becomes almost a mere mortal on the football field. And so, But he had that one great year, and he stays in the game. He gets into coaching, especially in college. Coaches at all these different college stops. But one of my favorite parts of this story is – Eventually, Jeff, he becomes the head coach at Wake Forest, where he coached a future Bears running back named Brian Piccolo. <laughs> Jeez. Small world. Small world. And that's Beady Feathers. But, man, I just I wish there was more clips of him in that thousand-yard year. Oh, there's only one I found. And, yeah, he looks yeah faster and quicker than everyone else on the field. But they just say, uh, I think even Nagurski said there was no comparison to him running the ball he was just he was that athletic compared to everyone else grange and nagurski together is like really fascinating because you have these two hall of fame backs in the backfield at the same time you know starting when when nagurski comes on board but for that 34 season you would have the biggest baddest power back that you've ever seen in bronco nagurski and then you've got this guy who's just like faster than lightning and so you have this amazing backfield combination with feathers and nagurski and i just find that to be like the most exciting year that the bears backfield has had probably ever yeah and just to think that you know what if well we don't want to get ahead of ourselves with the what ifs but you know the bears are so dominant at that point they're winning championships they're in the championship games those years in the mid early 30s and you know the one year they had them healthy, they were extremely successful. Yeah, that's it's a that's a great tease for the categories. And so why don't we do this? Let's break real quick for a quick commercial, and we'll come back and we'll get into those categories. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have 
every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, Matt, we're back. So we're going to go through the categories, and let's just start it off with the, your favorite stat of the decade. We already mentioned it, but it's got to be Automatic Jack and his 76 consecutive point-after attempts. Just unheard of at the time. I just love I love me some Automatic Jack. I, I like it. I You know, for me, I honestly, I went with, with BD Feathers, the first back, mm-hmm. uh, going over 1,000 yards, and it's just because the Bears have such an amazing running back history. Uh, you know, we've already covered Red Grange. You know, we've been talking about Bronco Nagurski. Here's another back. We're going to, you know, we're going to get to Gail Sayers and Walter Payton and Matt Forte. You know, we're going to get to a lot of like really great backs. But here's one that Bears fans should know because he's the first back to go over a thousand yards. And he did it in 11 games. 11 games. You know, it's, this isn't like a 16 game season where, you know, 20 backs go over a thousand yards in the you know, 2000s or in the 90s or whatever. This is 11 games. Over eight over a yards a yards. carry. Unheard of, Jeff. It's unreal. It's crazy. It's crazy. So that, that's my favorite. But Automatic Jack, that's a that's a great one, too. I love that he basically is the guy that invents modern place kicking, too. It's very cool. Next next category, best player. I don't think there's much debate, but go ahead and tell me who you have for best player. Well, I, I assume we're going to have the same guy, and it's going to be Bronco Nagurski. And, and all the stuff I read and all the... You know, with the 100-year anniversary of the Bears, Nagurski's top five in about every list. In a lot of the lists, he's top three. Uh, usually you got Peyton and then some combination of, you know, Singletary, Buttkiss, whomever. But Nagurski's always right there. And so I think just a dominating player in his era. And I, he's the best player of the decade. Yeah. I don't think there's much debate here. It's a, this is an easy one. I don't think they'll always be easy, but I think this one's an easy one. And I think that just for me, I read a book called Monster of the Midway. It was written by Jim Dent, and I highly recommend it. It has all these different stories that I've pulled for different articles and for this for this podcast. And that's one that I think is really worth uh, diving into if you really like the idea of, of reading more about Bronco Nagurski. So I won't belabor too much uh, more about Nagurski, but that is the book to read for him so uh, the next category did you have a different answer for most exciting player well i had bd feathers because i just think it must have been breathtaking to watch him run for those thousand yards during his first year so that would be my answer for most exciting player yeah i i mean there's so many good players but a lot of them are on the line again i i like line play 
um, more than most people, but it's hard to call it exciting unless it's like watching Quentin Nelson or something like that. Uh, and so I think that people were probably paying a lot of money to come see Danny Fortman play guard. And so it's, it's got to be a guy like Feathers in that 34 season. So I'm, I'm going to agree with you there. Now, here's I think this one's really hard. And here's how I'm going to say it. So who was your favorite player? And again, we didn't watch these guys and it's, you know, you don't have film for the most part, um, but who's the guy you think you would cheer for? And if your answer is Nagurski, let me know that. Um, but if your answer is Nagurski, you have to give me a second pick. Well, my answer is not Nagurski. My answer is Bill Hewitt. I just think, and I know we live in a different time now where someone not wearing a helmet would not be <laughs> celebrated, no, right. given all we know about head trauma. Right. I would have to imagine if I was in the 1930s, and here's this guy that is so tough during this really tough time in America, that, and he's refusing to wear this helmet, I just think that that would be my favorite player. Like, that would be my favorite guy. He's so tough, Jeff. He refuses to wear a helmet. I'm going through tough times. In the 1930s, I can identify with him. That's that's funny. I you know what I I didn't consider him, um, but that's a great answer for me. It is Nagurski because I think he's just uh, he's he's got so many legendary stories that he's super fun to read about. But I I force myself to 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 make a second pick, and for me it is it's Danny Fortman. I think he's this really mm-hmm. cool guy. He's got a great story. Smart, you know the the fun story with him and Hallis negotiating his med school schedule at the University of Chicago. Uh, he's undersized, but he's like absolutely dominant. Uh, seven straight first team All Pros. It's honestly crazy. I don't care that it's the 30s and 40s that he does that in. That's a really crazy record that he that he puts together. So absolutely super amazing guy, and I I, I love I love that he's part of Bears history. So. Did you have a best season by a Bears player? Uh, I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but BD Feathers, his thousand yard year. It's just, it's not, nothing is really comparable to it in terms of stats. From that decade, I think it's it's just unheard of at that time. Yeah, I have the same answer, and but I'm curious if you dug into any or, or found any particular games where maybe he has the best game of anybody, or if you found a different game to highlight. Um, not a particular game, but I know I think his longest run of the year was 80 plus yards, so it might have been that game. But I did not uh, get into too much detail with individual games for him. Well, I dove in a little bit to try to find what I would consider the best game by a bear from the decade. And what I came up with, and I I was actually finding this answer through uh, through different means, 1933 championship game, that the first NFL championship game, the one against the Giants, Nagurski throws two touchdown passes. And I just think like, Mm -hmm. okay, like, it's a weird game, you know, everything's different. It's, you know, Nagurski's obviously not the quarterback. He is a giant fullback. So what's he doing throwing the ball? And my thinking is, you know, he has 63 yards rushing. So it's, it's a good game. It was like on 13 carries. Why does he have two touchdown passes? And I think it's just that he is such the focal point of the Bears offense that everybody's just flocking to him. And so he's able to complete a couple of passes that break for points. This is a close game. They win 23-21. And the, the touchdown in the, you know, he throws a touchdown in the fourth quarter to, to go ahead of the Giants. They were in the lead at that point. And so Nagurski's touchdown passes are incredibly important. Yeah. I think it's the best game by anybody in the decade. Well, to, to kind of build off that, Jeff, I read about that too. And what I think happens is at least how I picture it. It's they hand it off to Nagurski and almost like a 
who have you seen this with? Uh, it comes to mind like a Tim Tebow who sprints towards the line, sprints towards the line, jumps up, throws it, and he actually throws it to Bill Hewitt, and then Bill Hewitt laterals it to another teammate. And that's how they score the go-ahead touchdown in that championship game. And so had to be just a super exciting play. But, yeah, you're right. It's, it's tough to visualize exactly how all this stuff happened without the footage. Well, absolutely. But I think you have to assume he is such the focal point that everybody's biting to try to make sure that they stop him. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a, why he's such so effective because he's got a lot of passing touchdowns in his in his history, which is kind of crazy. Like there's one game that I found where he actually throws a touchdown to Red Green. And I think it's got to be the only – uh, touchdown in history where a Hall of Fame running back throws to a Hall of Fame running back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, so that I just think it's a really cool that he was just you know probably was just the focal point uh, for a defense to stop, and you know they were able to get creative and find ways to take advantage of that and and win some games with it. So, did you have something that stuck out to you as the best moment in the decade that you wanted to highlight? Well, my best moment was that play with a jump pass from Nagurski and the completed to Hewitt and the lateral. But maybe let me go this route with it. In, in the research, I found that the 1932 championship game was played in Chicago Stadium, which here, here's what happened. It's apparently a blizzard in Chicago. There's huge wind chills. And so they decide to play this championship game inside. And that's challenging enough. But they, they played it inside the stadium. The field was only 80 yards long. So they had to make kind of all these special accommodations. And apparently the field was covered with manure because the circus had been in town the week before. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, it lets us know, it reminds us that the NFL wasn't quite the NFL yet because they're playing in this stadium that is not meant for football. And there's horse poop all over the field. And, but the Bears win that game, 9 nothing, And so I kind of thought that was just a, a neat moment where I'm not sure we can picture anything like that today. There's no comparison, I believe, to that today. No, I mean, obviously the NFL is going to do everything they can to play on the best surfaces you know, in, in the modern game. So to think that they would follow up a circus, which there's that old story about Hallis meeting a president, and I can't remember exactly which one it is. And he's introduced to the president as this is George Hallis of the Chicago Bears. And the president replies, oh, I love animal acts. <laughs> he has no idea that he's I hope talking that about president, a football team. I hope that president was not reelected. <laughs> well, he certainly wasn't a football fan. All right. This is the GM part of the show. Best roster move could be draft pick. Since the draft starts in 36, we can start talking about draft picks. Or a signing or a trade, something that you that stuck out to you as being like really a, a great move for the Bears. This is total Hallis. He sees this quarterback in the 39 draft, says this guy could anchor this team for the next 10 years. He tells the Pittsburgh Steelers, draft this quarterback and then I'll trade for him. And that's what he did. And the quarterback, Jeff, Sid Luckman. So he acquired an extra first round pick, got Sid Luckman from the Steelers. You son of a gun. Like, we don't talk about these answers before, and I was hoping that I could spring this one on you. No. Nope. Uh, and nope. so I'm going to add a little bit uh, more flavor okay. to this. So, so, <laughs> so Hallis actually, the, the trade is Hallis sends a couple of linemen, and I cannot for the life of me find out what the linemen's names were. 
but he sends two linemen to the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1938. And he says, I just want your first round pick in, in return in the, in the next draft. And so the way that I think it worked is that the Pirates, or eventually the Steelers, they select Luck, Luckman at Hallis's direction, and then they then trade him to balance out that trade from the previous year. And so he, amazingly enough, and not maybe amazingly enough, this is the 1939 draft, the 1936 draft was the first one. This is the first draft pick trade in the history of the wow. NFL. It's amazing because the Pirates end up being terrible in 38 anyway, right? They're trying to, you know, improve their team. Hallis sends a couple of linemen their way. They still are pretty terrible. They end up with the second worst records. Therefore, they have the second overall pick. Uh, Hallis has the rights to it, says draft Luckman. Now, what's kind of crazy is I found a, a lot of this information because I was reading Sid Luckman's testimony from a 1950s antitrust case. <laughs> Where he is trying to explain to this committee, uh, uh, this congressional committee, how this happened and why this was okay that you would trade a draft pick for players, uh, you know, for, for for a later draft. And I just thought that this was just a fascinating thing. But Hallis dreamed this up. At some point, no one had thought that you could trade draft picks. But here's Hallis saying, well, I can trade you players and I just get to pick uh, for you for the next draft. Wow, that that blows my mind. Just the first, not only the first uh, traded draft pick, but I mean, th- this is the quintessential Bears quarterback. Maybe still to this day, until it's still absolutely it is. I think that an honorable mention. I already mentioned it before. But honorable mention should be the 1936, the first draft where Hallis uh, gets two Hall of Famers. Out. There's only four Hall of Famers out of that entire draft, uh, and he gets two of them in uh, Danny Fortman and Joe Steiderhar. And then I just kind of want to note on that 36 draft, just for fun, that the Brooklyn Dodgers drafted an end out of Alabama by the name of Hall Bear Bryant. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I just, I love it when like these famous coaches that maybe weren't like great players and you find their name in like the draft history. And I was like, oh, Paul Bryant. How crazy is that? (laughs) So uh, what, what round was he drafted? Third round. So he's, I mean, he's he a was a good player. player. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. I, I, had, I had no idea he was that accomplished of a player. So I think uh, Hal has had an incredible decade and uh, as a GM, and he's like, uh, you know, this is Hall of Fame GM decade for him. It sets up for a lot of success in the '40s. But do you think that he had a worst roster move of any kind? Uh, Jeff, not that I could find, but I know you have an idea for that. Well, I think, you know, I think it's letting Bronco walk. Uh, Bronco still had a lot of good football left in him, I think. And he lets him walk because there's a contract dispute. One of, you know, many in Hallis's history. Of course. Yes. One of the many. Bronco, the, the difference with Bronco is that he had an alternative. And that alternative was he could go on the professional wrestling tour and be <laughs> a star there. And so he does. He calls Hallis's bluff. He leaves the Bears and he joins professional wrestling and he goes on to win the, you know, professional wrestling championship of the world. He's incredibly popular. He really breaks his body doing it. It's even more rough. Professional wrestling is even more rough than football is, believe it or not. And so he really just breaks his body doing this and and unfortunately ended prematurely what could have been an even more amazing football career. And so I, I think that's a that's a pretty big negative for Hallis in that column. But 
Overall, an incredible, incredible decade for George Hallis as the GM. The next category is, what's your favorite what if? It's got to be Beatty Feathers getting hurt. Mm. What could he have done in his career if that's his first year? And it just leads me to believe that I think the numbers he could have put up for that time would have been unheard of and probably would not have been matched for quite a few years until the game maybe got into more modern stages of the maybe 50s or 60s because, uh, again, the his 1,000 yards uh, was so dominating compared to what everyone else was doing at the time and his 8.5 yards of carry. And so... Yeah, and he, even if he can't keep that up, that's like, you know, even if he drops down to not being able to break that many in the open or anything like that, he's still a guy that's capable of putting up bigger numbers than what he did after he was injured. Yes, of course. And so that that's my biggest what if. I think I'm going to agree with you. I had kind of thought Bronco, but Bronco already establishes his legend. And, you know, spoiler, he comes back in the 40s for one season. And so I he's kind of legendary anyway, but Feathers is not a guy that you know, most bear fans know about good for you if you do, but this is a guy that probably could have turned himself into a hall of fame running back, but he gets hurt and derails his career before he can really make his legend known. And so I think you're right on that one. I, I'm going to, I'm going to change my answer to what you, what you're putting down the next category, assuming that the skill level translates to the modern game, what player from the thirties would you put on the 2006 bears that you think would put them over the top to win the super bowl? This was a tough one because we're tempted to go quarterback every single time. <laughs> right. But I don't know if we can do that for this decade. Plus, that would be no. boring to do that every single time. Right. And so I just thought thought maybe Nagurski, but you know, hey, we got Erlacher, we got Thomas Jones. I don't know if we need him. So I went Bill Hewitt just because uh, Mike Brown gets injured towards the end mm. of that year, right? Yes. No, he misses the Super Bowl. That wasn't necessarily what Hewitt did during that time, but he's extremely athletic. He's about the size that could play free safety. And, again, the guy is tough as nails. I think uh, he puts an already dominating defense just over the edge. Like, how tough he is, he would fit in perfectly with all those guys, with Erlacher and Briggs and Tillman and all those guys, and it would just be seamless. And maybe we can stop Peyton, or maybe there's not that blown coverage, Jeff, in 2006, that I think was Daniel Manning. Get Manning out of there. Put Hewitt in there. That doesn't happen. And maybe we have a chance to win that game. Fascinating. That's uh, that's interesting. I'm glad that you got Hewitt because you really went deep into into his history. I, I answered Bronco, and my answer for Bronco, I like Jason McKee. He's a good player. But I think if you added a superstar big power back that could not only block for TJ, but you know, could carry the ball on his, on his own and apparently could run some fullback passes uh, from time to time. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that he would potentially add like an even bigger element to keeping the ball on the ground. And you get to that Super Bowl game and, I mean, he, you know, Thomas Jones was absolutely tearing it up in the Super Bowl. And for some reason they went away from him. If you had a better second option uh, for handing the ball off in that Super Bowl than Cedric Benson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like Bronco could be. I could see that as being reason to stick with the running game longer and maybe you just take the ball out of the air and Peyton doesn't have the ball and the Bears just hold on to that lead that Devin Hester gives them. So I went Bronco, but I, I love your idea of, 
of adding to that secondary because they really did miss Mike Brown. So the good answer from you on that. The next category is what player from this decade would you most want on the Bears 2020 roster? Well, we already kind of alluded to it, but I'm going automatic Jack Manders. Because, <laughs> That's great. Okay. Because I don't want to have to worry about the kicking game anymore. The, yeah. the kicking game, the last two years, it's just I can't I can't take it, Jeff. Give me automatic Jack. Every extra point is in. He's a good field goal kicker. I mean, could you imagine his skill level if he had the modern day training and technique and could actually, you know, be almost coached to do this? For how much he figured out on his own, he could be one of the best kickers in today's game. So I'll take I'll take automatic Jack. I love it. I honestly think your answer might be better than mine, but I can't not take Danny Fortman here. Mm-hmm. And I, there's still a hole uh, at right guard. He's known as the heart and soul of the run game. So to me, that says like in the modern game, he'd be the best right guard, right? Because he yeah. can run to the right side. And so imagine him plugging him in. He's still got white hair. He's still got Daniels. You know, plug him in next to Massey and just like run David Montgomery off that right I side like and just see what happens. I like, like it a lot. Man. Yeah, that, that, that excites me quite a bit. And, you know, another smart guy, another leader, you know, on the offensive line. I love it. So that was my guy. But man, automatic Jack, that's a that is a very tempting answer too. Even though I I, I I have hope for Eddie Pinheiro, but that's a, that's a, that's a really good answer. All right. Next categories. So we're going to flip that around. Uh, who from the modern bears do you think would have the most impact on this decade? So who are you taking backwards? Uh, Brian Erlacher, peanut Tillman or Devin Hester? You know, I'm going to go peanut Tillman. Okay. Just cause I think in the thirties, um, ball skill is becoming more important. They're throwing it a little more guys are still playing both ways. And so we need a guy that can play both ways. Tillman obviously is going to be great on defense. Think of how many fumbles he would force. Oh my God, hundred. And you know you can put him on offense. You could have him run it. Not that he's he never had blazing fast speed, but I guarantee you can split him out wide, throw him the ball every now and then. He would just he would fit in perfectly in that era. I actually said Peanut as well, and part of my reason was uh, a guy that comes into the league at the end of the decade, uh, Sammy Baugh. And mm. Sammy Baugh, as much as Sid Luckman changes the game, Sammy Baugh got there a couple years earlier, mm-hmm. and Baugh really changes the game. He really does. Uh, he's really the first quarterback that throws a lot, and so he would be a great antidote to Baugh. And I, I really like the idea of how many turnovers he could create. And then, you know, when Peanut got the ball in his hand, when he, when he was on the run, he had a nose for the end zone. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, so, and so I do think that he could be a, a really competent player on offense. So, so he he was my choice as well. So that's interesting that we we agreed on that one. All right, the final question, my favorite question: Who won the decade? Who won the 1930s as a Chicago Bear? It's got to be Bronco Bronco Nagurski. He's one of the top all-time Bears players. He's a great two-way player. He's got a great name, <laughs> and you, you know I love these names, but. I mean, he he won the decade. He is the guy for a lot of years on some very, very good Bears teams, Bears teams that win championships. And so it's got to be Bronco. So his given name is Bronislaw. Is what? Bronislaw Nagurski. Well, I'm so, glad he went with Bronco. So Bronco's the nickname. But, so again, it reinforces your, your comment about the amazing nicknames from this era because it's hard to picture him as anything other than Bronco. It's absolutely Bronco. Bronco wins the decade, no question to me. And I think that he wins the decade because he calls Hallis's bluff. And mm. he 
he has an alternative and he goes and makes his living in another way uh, than playing football. And I think that that is a really interesting moment because he was bigger than than Hallis in that moment, right? And so I, I just, he's so amazing. He has so many great stories and he was such an incredible player for the Bears. Again, he's also the, that the Chicago Bears chose as the bobblehead to represent the decade for the 100 years. And so <laughs> to me, like they got that one right. It's absolutely Bronco Nagurski. Final thoughts from the 30s? Uh, I think you're really starting to see the game revolutionize. They can they got through this decade with all the financial troubles, and then they're going to get through World War II. And then, you know, is Jeff, is the late 40s when you really start to see the league take off? I think, honestly, it is because you have, you know, once you get past World War II, you can kind of get back to following you know, normal life or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And then you start to, you start to really see a crescendo of competitiveness and, a, and more teams coming into the league. And then there's a merger that we'll get to. There's a lot of fun stuff that we're going to be able to get mm. to uh, from the NFL's evolution. But it really does start to pick up because the Bears got Sid Luckman and start running a very exciting offense in the 40s. But we'll keep that for the next episode. That's it. That's the 1930s. So join us next time as we cover the 1940s. We'll get into Sid Luckman and a lot of his teammates that won a lot of championships for the Bears. Keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at Gridironborn on Twitter. And until next time, enjoy the big band style of the 1930s music with the song Jungle Jump. Jungle Jump.